there. What a sermon almost. Uh, and it's perfect because that's where we're headed in the next couple months. We're going to talk a lot about Jesus. We're going to talk a lot about Jesus. Um, it's kind of wild uh, that, that as a preacher I can sit back and be like, what's something I haven't talked about in a while? And we've talked about the Spirit, and we've talked about being disciples, and we've talked about how to raise your family. And, and there's times that I kind of go, boy, I haven't talked about Jesus in a little bit. We're going to talk about Jesus a little bit. And as we look to talk about Jesus, that song gets to the heart of something that I think is really important, which is that when you read Scripture, you come across passages occasionally that say things like, you can believe that there's one God, and yet you can still believe only as much as the demons do. Even the demons believe in one God, and they're lost. And so you can believe in God and still be in trouble. You can give mental assent that there is one God who created everything and still have spiritual trouble and problems in your life. Jesus says in, in Matthew that you can call on the name of the Lord and yet he may still not know you. That, that you can call out Jesus' name and if you're still denying him with your life and you're not living according to the will of God, you could still be in trouble. And so the idea of knowing who Jesus is and what he was about is more than just being able to pass a Jesus uh, Bible quiz. You can do really well on a Life of Christ trivia quiz and yet still have no relationship with Him. Right. And so the song that we just sang, Blessed Jesus, Hold My Hand, Walk Through uh, the, This Life With Me, reminds us that knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. And what we're going to be talking about in the next several weeks is having a deeper and richer understanding of who Jesus was and is so that we can have a better understanding of what it means to be the body of Christ who has a relationship with Him and lives out what He would do, actually being the hands and mouth and heart of Jesus in our world today. It's about being His follower, His disciple. Knowing Jesus should change your life if you do it right. Because if you learn about Jesus and your life doesn't change to look more like the way He lived, then you learned it wrong. You're not living it right. Uh, uncovering Jesus should help us discover what it means to be His people. Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about as we spend the next couple of months uh, getting into Jesus. Uh, I planned this week to really start getting into the gospel writers, the biography writers of Jesus and, and what he did and who he was and why it mattered. Um, but the truth is, I've still got more studying to do before I'm ready to do that lesson. Um, but the one I wanted to do this week to open the series instead is looking at the super secret, hidden in plain sight job description of the Messiah that Jesus understood, but everyone that saw his ministry were shocked by. And to understand that, we don't start in the Gospels. We need to go all the way back to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. So we're going to start today with a passage that is known as the, the passage about the suffering servant in Isaiah 52. And I'm glad that we had, Paul, had Pat leading us in a song that woke you all up because this is a bit of a long text, and I want you to stick with it because the weight of this text just kind of rolls over you as you continue to read it. And I could give you the highlights, but you'll miss that there is, as you read this, just this momentum of what the suffering servant is going to go through. And Isaiah, when he's writing this passage, is writing it to, uh, to Israel and really Judah particularly as they've been in exile in Babylon. 
And, and Israel is asking questions the, the, like, uh, who was unfaithful, God or us? How did we end up here? Is God still real if we can be captives in a foreign land with foreign gods? Are the gods of Babylon the ones we should worship while we're in Babylon, or should we continue to worship our God even in this place? They're asking all these questions, and Isaiah tells the people, one, you sinned, not God. God is always faithful. You are not. If you come back to righteousness, God will bring you home to Jerusalem and restore the temple and his city and his nation and you as a people. If you can just anticipate that and be faithful where you are, God will take care of the rest. That's a bunch of what Isaiah is about. It's a, a complex book. But this passage we're going to be reading uh, this morning is talking about the suffering servant of Israel. Starting in uh, Isaiah 52 and verse 13, here's what we've got. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many 
and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And when Isaiah wrote this, he gave it to the people uh, who were in exile in Babylon, and he gives them this teaching, and they go, Isaiah, who are you talking about? And they begin arguing about who it was that he was talking about, and the arguments about who it is that Isaiah is talking about continue uh, into Bible classes and Bible studies and books and scholars today. And some people say, listen, this suffering servant is talking about Isaiah or, or another leader in Israel who is the one who, who sacrifices so much so that Israel can be brought back to Jerusalem. You, you see, you have to remember, this passage meant something for several hundred years before Jesus shows up. It meant something. He's telling the story of how Israel will leave exile and go back to Jerusalem. It has something to do with that season of Israel's history. Is it about a leader? Is it about Isaiah? Most people don't think that. There's some who say that, that what's going on here uh, is that, that it's actually talking about Israel as a nation. That Israel as a nation is symbolically described as this suffering servant. And that what Israel is revealing is how the Gentiles' mistreatment of them is going to be revealed as an injustice. It's going to be revealed as something that is terribly wrong and ought not have happened. And that someday when the Messiah comes and the Messianic age comes to breaking into the world, that the Gentiles are going to look at everything they've done to hurt the suffering servant Israel and say, Oh no, we had it wrong. These were God's children, and we mistreated them, and now we have to repent and change our ways. And there's all kinds of different discussions about what that's going to look like when that happens. And yet, by the time we get into Luke's gospel, Luke and Jesus and later Philip on the road with the Ethiopian eunuch take this passage and say, you don't know what this is about? It's about Jesus. He's the suffering servant. Israel, yeah, Israel went through some of that, but, but they didn't complete it. It wasn't completed until Jesus suffered and died for our iniquities. Jesus was crushed on our behalf. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and yet He did not open His mouth. All of these things happened in Jesus' life, and in His death, and in His resurrection. Don't you understand that? And so for Christians, we usually just skip to that part at the end, and we go, oh, it's the Jesus one, it's not the others. The reality is it's probably, in some level, all of them. And that's complicated for us to think about, because when we think about prophecies, we think about like Lord of the Rings and wizards and, and movies with you know, Star Wars and Deliverers, and the prophecy says that the Deliverer will come, and they exactly and specifically and surprisingly fulfill all of the prophecies. The Old Testament and New Testament don't treat prophecy that way. The way they treat it is there are multiple levels of pattern-type fulfillment. And so a voice of one in the wilderness calls, prepare a way for the Lord, is talking about a voice calling to God's people, it's time to come home to Jerusalem and out of Babylon. And yet the New Testament says, yeah, but how much more so is that true when one who is in the wilderness, John the Baptist, preaches that God's Spirit is breaking into this world and His kingdom is coming. It happened then, but it's happening even more so now. Uh, Bill's, if you want a book about this, Bill's book, um, the, 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 the Moses Connection. 
Jesus equals Moses was what popped in my head, but that's not it. It's a book about the Gospel of John and, and the story of Moses being reenacted in John's telling of the Jesus story in the Gospel of John. And Bill explains this really well, how the pattern of prophecy repeats. And it's not one or the other, it's really all of them. But what Jesus comes to very clearly understand, more so than the hundreds of years of people who had been reading Isaiah before him, is that this suffering servant is giving the Messiah super-secret, hidden-in-plain-sight job description. And Jesus gets it, and nobody else did. And so when Jesus breaks onto the scene and starts behaving like a Messiah uh, and, and doing things that make people think that He's starting to claim to be the Messiah and Savior that they have long waited for and prayed for and cried out to God to bring them, to deliver them, the people expected some warrior prophet king. The people expected that, that the Messiah would come with power and authority and greatness, and he would rule from the great throne with great armies and great power, and, and that the world would say, the great one is here. The one with all the power and all the might and all the authority. And, and as a result of him being here, that God's people's lives would be made easier. That they would have more influence and power, greater wealth, greater influence, that their lives would be better because Messiah was here. And then Jesus shows up. And he doesn't look like that. He's got no power. He's got no prestige. He's got no pedigree. He's convicted by a foreign, invading, occupying force and then, and then crucified as a common criminal alongside other criminals. He's dead on a Roman cross, and you want to tell me that this is the Messiah I've been expecting? I wanted a warrior prophet king. I wanted my life to be so much easier and better. And his teachings are one of humility and of grace and mercy and compassion, and they're difficult to match with this warrior prophet king that I expected. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and the others who were there had a difficult time seeing the super-secret, hidden-in-plain-sight job description of the Messiah that Jesus embodies. And it's part of the big reason that they reject Him. It's part of the big reason that they get a conspiracy to get Him arrested. It's part of the big reason that they get the mob angry enough to crucify Him, because this guy can't be the Messiah we've wanted. This guy is humble and eats with tax collectors and sinners and calls people to do crazy things like take up their cross and follow Him. If this guy's the Messiah, what would Jesus do? He would get despised and rejected by mankind. He suffered and was familiar with pain. People hid their faces from him and despised him. He was held in low esteem. He took our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced by our iniquities. His wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. As a sheep before his shearers was silent, he did not open his mouth. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus bore our sins, sufferings, and iniquities. He healed our wounds and made intercession for us. He did all these things. Luke and Jesus and Philip are very comfortable saying, we understand that Isaiah 52 and 53 are the super secret, hidden in plain sight job description for the Messiah, and Jesus did it, and we still are talking to people who don't understand it. 
And it's hard to minister to people that can't understand this job description. And they want to know, why would Jesus choose to go that route to be Messiah? Aren't there other ways? And certainly Satan and the temptations offered him other ways. And yet it's in uh, Paul's writings that Paul's trying to explain to people why Jesus chose the path he did to be the Messiah he was. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 He says this, listen, here's why Jesus did it this way. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and found an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul understands the super-secret job description, doesn't he? Paul understands that Jesus left heaven and became nothing, even as a human, being obedient to God, even to death on a cross. That this emptying of himself is the embodiment of the suffering servant described in Isaiah 52 and 53. And so everyone in Jesus' time that says, yeah, this is about what Israel has gone through, Jesus says, no, it's about what I'm going through. And the apostles start saying, this is about Jesus' job description that Isaiah described. Jesus lived it out, and now he calls his followers to live this way too. Here's one of the big difficult things about being a Christian, is that we are also called to share in Jesus' super secret hidden in plain sight job description. And it's funny that it catches us by surprise that we are called to these lives of suffering and these lives of pouring ourselves out and these lives of humility and putting others before ourselves. It's exactly what Paul describes. Listen, he says, listen, if you have received any encouragement from being united with Christ, quick show of hands, how many of you in this room have received any encouragement from being united in Christ? Few of us? If you've received any encouragement... And a lot of us have received an unbelievable amount of encouragement from being united with Christ. But if even just a little bit of it, any comfort from His love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. The suffering servant of Isaiah is embodied in Jesus, and then Jesus, through the New Testament, calls his disciples and followers to embody what he did, fulfilling the job description of the suffering servant. If we want to be Jesus in the world today, WWJD, Jesus would be willing to be humbled and obedient, pouring himself out for the sake of exalting others. And that's a tough teaching. It's a tough teaching. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. He died on the cross to teach us how to. 
to teach us how to live like he lived and died like he died. And then he invites us into the internal joy-filled, spirit-filled life that he has after the resurrection. We get to share in that too. It's not bad news. It's good news. It's good news that we get to share in this, this movement that's all about lifting up others, that's all about compassion and mercy, that's all about being a light to the nations and sustaining the weary, being willing to be held in low esteem and pierced and crushed for the sake of the lost. The suffering servant is Jesus' job description, and it becomes our job description as those who are in the body of Christ today. And then we look at the church today, and we look at the people that are leaving the church today. How many of you guys know someone who has left the church and may never come back in the last year or year and a half? How many of them left because they lost faith in God? How many of them left because they lost faith in God's people? And I'm telling you that Paul thinks that if we understood this whole suffering servant, super secret, hidden in plain sight job description, that those people wouldn't have had to leave. Because we would be the people who understand how, how to humble ourselves. Uh, and I don't mean that, that they're right, wrong for leaving or that we're wrong for being the ones they left. What I mean is that the people who are leaving and staying could get along better if we understood how to live like this. That if we understood this job description of being the ones who were willing to humble ourselves to, to exalt the opinions and priorities of, of others. And it doesn't mean that we don't speak truth. Jesus spoke truth all the time, but he did it in a way that both sinners and tax collectors and the wealthy and the poor all wanted to be around him. He had this ability to humble himself and exalt others that welcomed all. Instead, we today have found ways to fight and argue about everything. One of our sayings that comes up in leadership meetings a lot here at Northwest is, is that a hill you're willing to die on? And sometimes the answer is, oh, no, carpet can be whatever color you want. Sorry, it's not a hill I'm willing to die on. I have an opinion, not dying on it. And sometimes the answer is, hey, just so you know, this is a hill I'm willing to die on. So if you want to go to the, go to the mattresses with me, we're going to the mattresses. We're going to have a talk about this and maybe throw down a little. I care enough about this to really dig in. It's a conversation that helps us think about it, but when I look at people and what they're arguing about in so many different situations today, uh, you ask people, is this a hill you're willing to die on? And their answer is, I'm willing to die on all the hills. <laughs> and it's a new hill every day. It's things that won't matter in one year, ten years, and certainly not in a thousand years, but I'm going to die on this hill and I'll kill someone else that wants to push me off of it every single day because I don't have anything better to do. That's exhausting. And it certainly doesn't sound like the suffering servant job description that Jesus embodies and the Bible calls us to. Your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus looks different. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Sounds different than dying on every single hill you come across. So what would it take to get our people Christians in the world today to take on the mindset and the job description of the suffering servant, the Messiah, and the church. What would it take? I've got a couple of theories. Here's one of them. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. There's this other theory that's incredibly meaningful, I think, to immigrants. Peter writes this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. I guess I should give Peter credit for that crazy idea, not me. Here's another one of his. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous and the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. Hear this echo of Isaiah 52 again? Christ suffered, so why do you think you shouldn't? Christ suffered for the sake of others. Why aren't you willing to do it? Jesus lived such a good life that, that people should be ashamed of the slander that they brought against Him. Can we aspire to live such good lives amongst pagan people? And if you're living a good, moral, God-following life today, you're doing it among pagans at least at some point in your life. And they're going to slander you for doing it at least some point in your life. And yet, when you are ready to give an answer for the reason of your hope, you do it with all caps and angry voices, right? No. Gentleness, respect, humility, and you give to them and say, listen, I've got to tell you the reason I've got hope. And they say, I believe you because I've seen it in your life and your goodness. So that even if they don't believe what we believe, they at least believe that we believe it. Yeah because of how we live in the midst of a world that lives differently. So the Messiah's job description that Isaiah gives us, he gives this, these visions of a suffering servant Messiah, and Jesus reveals what that job description looks like, and then he calls us to live according to that same job description. We're invited to be the body of Jesus today, living the way that Jesus lived. And the suffering servant passages in Isaiah existed for centuries before Jesus showed up. For centuries before Jesus showed up. Jesus shows up and He says, this is my job description. And everyone else that had known these passages for centuries said, no, it isn't. It's not. Peter says, you know, when Jesus tells him, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified, Peter goes, no, you aren't. That's not the job description of the Messiah. You're going to be on a throne, and I get to be in the next throne, and we're all going to rule over everyone, and they'll bow down. It's going to be great. Jesus, that's not the job description. And Jesus says, that's Satan's job description, not God's. Get behind me, Satan, Peter is told. 
So over and over again, what we see is that Jesus has this understanding of his job description that's different, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law don't share that understanding. They have memorized every word of Isaiah, and they don't understand what it means. Can you imagine what it would be like to memorize passages and then ignore them in your life as you tried to follow God in the best way possible? Jesus says things to his followers that should reveal the super secret hidden in plain sight job description of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he says things like, I'm going to suffer and then when I'm done suffering, it's your turn. He says things like, whoever wants to be the greatest among you will be the least and servant of all. And then he says it again, and then he says it again, and then he says it again, because they can't get it. It's hidden in plain sight why Jesus calls them to live suffering servant lives. Whoever wants to save their life must lose it. Take up your cross and follow me, he says. If you want to be my follower, take up your cross. It doesn't mean put on the jewelry. It means be willing to suffer and die at the hands of persecuting governments. That's what a cross is. He says, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but my followers will have nowhere to lay their head. We say, but Jesus, if we want your followers, we think our lives are going to be better and our bank accounts are going to be bigger and our jobs will be more uh, easy and successful. And he says, I didn't say that. Birds have nests, foxes have holes. My followers, they don't even always have somewhere to lay their head. The world hates you, then know it hated me first. Why are we so surprised that when the gospel is lived out genuinely following the will of God in the life of Jesus, that the world doesn't like it? It's because we've ignored the super secret, hidden in plain sight job description of being suffering servants. We get the rational side and we forget it. We miss the job description just like the Pharisees did. And what that looks like in the church today is if you go to a church that doesn't understand this, what you're going to get is self-help plus Jesus. If you become a Christian and you just follow Jesus, you're going to be a better husband, you're going to be a better father, you're going to be a better employee or a better boss, you're going to be more successful, you'll be blessed, things are going to go great. And that's fine. You can pursue that vision of the gospel. You just have to ignore this super secret hidden in plain sight stuff. The truth is that following Jesus can lead to blessing, ultimately leads to internal blessing, but in the meantime might have some bumps along the road, might require some sacrifices, might require the world disliking some of the things we say, some of the ways we live, might require us to make uncomfortable choices that others don't have to make. It's about total transformation. It's about total transformation. You have to be reshaped according to how Jesus lives and the way that he teaches and the things that he sacrifices and the reason he does it. So when we get into this study of Jesus, if you leave this study thinking, I can end this study the way I started it, you probably weren't looking enough at the real Jesus. Because Jesus is going to call on us to change things about ourselves. I mentioned this at the beginning, and I'll mention it again. Uh, James tells us that you can believe in God, and if you believe in Him completely as the one Creator God, then that means you've got demon-level faith. That's a pretty good minimum, but I hope you don't stay there. 
Jesus tells some of those that he's teaching, not everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved, but the one who does the Father's will will be saved. It's one thing to call on Jesus and say, Jesus, you're Lord of my life, but if you don't actually make Jesus Lord of your life, you're not doing anything. It's not enough to have the words without the actions and the follow-through and the transformation. The Bible tells us, listen, you get baptized, you get baptized into Jesus, and you start living like Jesus. And when we think WWJD, what we usually think is be nice to people and, and don't commit really ugly sins that you would be embarrassed to tell your mom about. Yeah, good moms who don't believe in Jesus should teach their kids that. Following Jesus means more than just being kind and having some sense of morality. All humans should be kind and have some sense of morality. Being a follower of Jesus Christ means that we adopt this full suffering servant job description of humility and exalting others and grace and compassion and mercy. And we think, God, that sounds tough. And he says, don't worry. When Jesus leaves, you can get baptized into him and you receive inside of you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to start shaping you and giving you all the things you lack, the joy, the peace, the mercy, the, the forbearance that it takes to put up with the people. And you're going to become a light to the nations, and you're going to become salt to the earth, and you're going to begin doing all these things that the whole world goes, boy, I don't believe what you believe, but I know that you do because of your goodness in the midst of badness. And we're going to need the Spirit to get us there. And we're going to need a real understanding that Jesus isn't just a guy walking around saying, be nice to each other, don't worry about the future. But he's actually calling us to a radically different kind of kingdom in a world that desperately needs to know our king. We need to know Jesus and be disciples of Jesus. So in the next couple of months, what we're going to be trying to do is to uncover the real Jesus to help us discover what it means to be his real disciples. I hope that you'll join me in opening your hearts and minds to more than just knowing about Jesus, to coming to a place where you know Jesus, and it changes who you are and how you live. If today you're ready to be baptized into Jesus so that you can have this lifelong, eternity-long journey of being shaped by the Spirit, by the grace of God, so that you can look more like Jesus, because the world certainly needs more of His disciples. You want to become one of them. The Bible tells us that you get baptized into Jesus and you start that journey at that moment and you walk it for the rest of eternity. If today's the day you start it, come forward while we stand and sing. Wonderful, wonderful day, day I will never forget. After I wandered in darkness away, Jesus is my Savior, I can.